Um, Johnson was two things endemically. One, he was a Texan, very proud of being a Texan. And two, he was just a natural politician. And there's a story that exemplifies both of those things. Uh, when he was a senator, uh, he was about to embark on a re-election campaign tour back in Texas and convened his speechwriters to review a draft speech that they had done for him. Johnson reviews this speech and he comes upon a passage from uh, Socrates. And he looks at this passage and he says, Socrates, Socrates. Now let me get this straight. I'm going back home to Texas to talk to just plain folks and you have me quoting Socrates? He said, keep the quote in, but start it with, my daddy always used to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's Lyndon Johnson. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is the 35th episode of Presidential. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you a date which will live in infamy. I said at the end of last week's episode that biographer Robert Caro would be our featured guest for discussing Lyndon Johnson. Well, I was so excited for that, and he was really excited to be on the podcast, and everything was planned, and then he got laryngitis, and he literally cannot speak at all right now. This is maybe where you realize that I actually create these episodes in real time each week. They're not finished way in advance and sitting in some little holding pen just waiting to be released. Um, but fortunately, another fantastic expert came to the rescue to save this episode, and that's Mark Updegrove. He is the director of the LBJ Presidential Library. He's the author of several books, including Indomitable Will... LBJ in the presidency, and he's former publisher of Newsweek. Now, Robert Caro wrote that understanding the character of the 36th president of the United States is essential to understanding the history of the United States in the 20th century. So even though Bob Caro isn't here, we're going to keep him here in spirit. And this episode is going to focus heavily on the character of LBJ, we're going to focus specifically on how he exerted power and worked his will. So now to set the stage, Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908 in Central Texas. In Caro's description of the Hill Country at that time and the type of person that it produced, uh, it's just... His description is so beautiful and powerful that um, since he's not here, I just decided that I will read it to you, okay? So he writes, and this is in The Path to Power, the first book he wrote on Lyndon Johnson. <clears throat> but the land was dominant, and while the hill country may have seemed a place of free range and free grass, in the hill country nothing was free success or even survival in so hard a land demanded a price that was hard to pay. 
It required an end to everything not germane to the task at hand. It required an end to illusions, to dreams, to flights into the imagination, to all the escapes from reality that comfort men. For in a land so merciless, the faintest romantic tinge to a view of life might result not just in hardship, but in doom. Principles, noble purposes, high aims, these were the luxuries that would not be tolerated in a land of rock. Only material considerations counted. The spiritual and intellectual did not. The only art that mattered in the hill country was the art of the possible. Success in such a land required not a partial, but a total sacrifice of idealism. It required not merely pragmatism, but a pragmatism almost terrifying in its absolutely uncompromising starkness. It required a willingness to face the hills head on in all their grimness, to come to terms with their unyielding reality, with a realism just as unyielding. A willingness, in other words, not only to accept sacrifices, but to be as cruel and hard and ruthless as this cruel and hard and ruthless land. So here, right here in Hill Country at the turn of the 20th century, with Lyndon Johnson, a young child, this is where we finally kick off our discussion with Mark Updegrove. Here we go. It was really a product of small town life. There was no running water, no electricity. It was a very hard life. His mother was a refined woman from Waco, Texas, who was uh, brought to the hill country by her husband, Sam Johnson, really unprepared for the very difficult life that lay before her. When LBJ was uh, uh, a toddler, his mother grew his hair really long and put it into curls, almost like he, he was a, a girl. And his father one day uh, cut his hair. He just didn't think he looked like a boy. And so he cut off all his hair. And Rebecca didn't speak to Sam for six weeks after that incident. Oh, my gosh. What does that tell you? What insight does that give you into the different personality forces in, in LBJ's life? You know, I think that uh, that Rebecca Johnson wanted to see in her son uh, a little of the refinement that she had her in her upbringing and uh, instilled in her uh, eldest son, Lyndon, an appreciation for education. He he doubted that he would have finished high school, let alone college, if not for the influence of his mother. And Sam Johnson wanted to see a boy who was ready to go out and help raise cattle with him, be sort of a cowboy. Uh, in in storied Texas fashion. I think he got from his father a love of politics. His father was elected uh, to the state legislature of Texas six times at different times in his life. So he went on the campaign trail with his dad and got an appreciation for retail politics very early on. He also saw how capricious life could be. His father is really a rags to riches to rags story. He was in the cotton and cattle businesses, did very well in cotton, and then lost all of his money when inflation went rampant in 1906. So uh, his status, uh, the status of Sam Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's father, went up and down. And Johnson saw that. And I think 
harbored great bitterness toward those who turned their backs on uh, on his father. Uh, I, I think it it shaped LBJ in a lot of ways. Yeah. Do you want to talk about a couple of those ways that you think, you know, how did poverty shape the sorts of ambitions and values that he would hold later in life? I think the more formative experience in LBJ, and it speaks volumes about his commitment to alleviating poverty, is when he was uh, between his junior and senior years in college and didn't have money to finish college. So he took a job as a teacher at a small Mexican-American school in Catula, Texas, which is close to the Mexican border. And he saw through the eyes of those Mexican-American school children for the first time their plight, uh, what bigotry and hatred looked like, what poverty looked like. And it had a searing effect on his conscience. And when he went to the White House, he would often say to aides, you go get this done. You get this legislation through. Think about those Mexican-American school kids. And do you think that, you know, especially as you look at the the later Lyndon Johnson, that he had parts of his mother and parts of his father in him in sort of equal measure or that he he ultimately ended up being more like one or the other? I think he had so many different aspects of his personality, some of his mother, surely, some of his father, uh, but so many other things as well. People who dealt with LBJ never consistently saw one person. You saw myriad individuals in that one human being. You know, imagine if I came to you, Mark, and I said, I'm about to go on a blind date with this guy, Lyndon Johnson. I've never met him. I hear you know him pretty well. You know, what's he like? Give me the the rundown on his character and what I'm in for. Sure. Uh, Johnson, it, we hear the term bigger than life, but I, I don't know of many historic figures uh, who really live up to that sentiment. Uh, Johnson was truly a bigger than life character. He was as big as the state that produced him, which of course has a fixation with with bigness. Johnson was, uh, in, in the words of one aide, 20 of the most interesting people I've ever met. <laughs> it was just, it, it, depending on who he was talking to, he could be a very different person from one minute to the next. And uh, extraordinarily enigmatic. And as Lady Bird Johnson once said, I'm no more bewildered by Lyndon than he is bewildered in himself. (laughs) Uh, He was simply overwhelming, uh, uh, or a tornado in pants. (laughs) He swept into the life of Lady Bird Johnson with gale force on a blind date in Austin, Texas, here where I'm talking to you, 82 years ago today. Uh, And they were set up by a mutual friend. LBJ was back in Texas from Washington, D.C., where he served as a congressional aide. Lady Bird Johnson was going to school at the University of Texas. And so they met and a whirlwind courtship ensued. And as, as Lady Bird described it, He told me all sorts of things about his job, what he liked about it, his family and his ambitions. I was just sort of listening wide-eyed, not knowing what I felt. Uh, But Lyndon Johnson very definitely knew what he felt 
and pursued her relentlessly in what amounted to a six-week courtship. Uh, he, he actually proposed marriage on their very first date. <laughs> so this is an example, an early example of the Johnson treatment. Uh, Johnson knowing what he wanted and pursuing it uh, uh, in an un unrelenting uh, and inimitable way. Johnson, when he knows what he wants, will not stop in getting it. And the Johnson treatment can look uh, very different depending on who, on who he's talking to and what their modus operandi is. Hmm. He, he was a psychologist. Hmm. He could sense what made you tick, what motivated you, what your strengths and weaknesses were. And if you were against him, he could win you over, wear you down, or just flat out beat you. And do you think that was just a natural skill and insight he had, or he learned it and honed it over the years? I think that that kind of talent is instinctive first and foremost. He might have learned certain things about people uh, that would give him uh, a sense of, of, of what would get them to come over to his side. But I think he had an instinctive view of human nature that helped him to, to get what he wanted. So you talked about Lady Bird. Um, I would love to hear how you think that she shaped him. You know, what parts of his character she either sharpened or softened. Johnson was a very mercurial person, wildly volatile at times. And Lady Bird Johnson was this calming force in his life. She gave him strength in many ways and she gave him equanimity. And he knew that. She smoothed his rough edges. And she also, as she said, uh, learned to walk in back of him and say thank you. And I think that was very important in the White House when you had these aides who were asked to work almost as hard as Lyndon Johnson. It helped to have Lady Bird Johnson there as a calming force and somebody who expressed gratitude more readily than, than Lyndon Johnson did. So, of course, part of what Johnson becomes very well known for is his ability to persuade and manipulate and cajole. Um, even before he enters politics, do you see that he has those skills? When he goes to college at, at Southwest State Teachers College, which is now Texas State University, he ends up working for the president of the university and becomes indispensable to the president. And through the president, sees uh, the, the, the power that he has over that community. And it fascinates Lyndon Johnson. So he, he becomes this uh, uh, invaluable resource to the president and through him gains his own power. Later, he goes to Washington, ends up being a, uh, a, a congressional aide, and also gets uh, has a similar experience to that congressman. He sees what congressional aides can do not only to aid the congressman that they work for, but to wield their own power. And Lyndon Johnson soon rises to the top of congressional aides. And when he's able to run for Congress himself three years later, uh, he does it unhesitatingly, becomes uh, a congressman at 29 years of age, rises through the House, wants desperately to be elected to the Senate, comes very close in 1941, and then in 1948 wins a seat. And in a very short period from 1948 through 1960, rises through the ranks from 
minority whip to uh, minority leader and then majority leader in 1956 and becomes probably the most powerful majority leader, certainly in the 20th century and perhaps in the history of the United States Senate. What do you see as key to his rise as senator in particular? Just an absolute quest for power and his ability to to um, acquire power by formulating relationships uh, with people who mattered in that body. Uh, There are a number of what he called daddies, mentors, folks that became sponsors for his political career and helped him to realize his ambitions. One of them was Richard Russell, the giant senator from the state of of Georgia, a very well-known Southern Democrat. Another one was Sam Rayburn, who was the powerful speaker of the House of Representatives. Folks like that uh, helped to nurture Lyndon Johnson, helped to school him, and helped him to ascend the ranks in the Senate, uh, both the House and Senate. Can you talk a little bit about money? So how he used it as a means toward political ends. Certainly he raised a lot for his own campaigns, but he also would you know, help get money for other politicians' campaigns, right? It would help them win. He would gain their loyalty. Well, I think Lyndon Johnson was just um, an instinctive politician. And, and money is in so many ways the oil of politics. And he knew how important it was not only for him to realize his ambitions and to retain office and power, but also to others. Johnson was also somebody who would give out gifts freely. Um, If you go to the LBJ Ranch, for instance, there's a whole store closet full of things that Johnson would give to, uh, to visitors at the LBJ Ranch. Doris Kearns Goodwin, for instance, talks, talks about uh, LBJ giving her an electric toothbrush, which was a novelty at the time. He said, because I want you to think of me when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. <laughs> um, I think most times when we think of some, someone wanting power, the question is always like, well, but why? <laughs> to do what with it? Do you think that there is an answer to that for Johnson? Do you think he wanted power for a reason or that for much of his life, he wanted it just as an end in itself. I think Johnson was fascinated by power. Uh, and you can see what he does to achieve his ambitions, both in the House and in the Senate. Uh, he formulates these relationships, whether genuine or not, because he knows that they will help if he wants to ascend the ranks. But one of the things that you can say about Johnson is This is a man who begs to be judged not by his words, but by his deeds. If you judge him by what he does, how he uses the political capital that he acquires, it's hard to to dispute his greatness because what he does makes us a better nation, uh, makes us more educated, makes us more just, uh, makes us more compassionate. That's the legislative legacy of Lyndon Johnson. And that's how he spends the political capital that, that, that he, he earns. He wants to do stuff. He doesn't want to hoard it just for the sake of having power. He wants to use that capital to put laws on the books that will allow America to fulfill its promise as a nation. 
So how crucial do you think his experience on Capitol Hill was to his ability to work his will as president? And I'm curious if it then gives you any sort of broader thoughts about whether presidents in general really benefit from having had experience as a a legislator. Well, in Lyndon Johnson's case, his experience on Capitol Hill was absolutely invaluable because he understood perhaps more than anyone at the time the legislative process. And it helped him to pass some of the most important legislation that, that has ever been passed in the in the history of our country. The Civil Rights Act, the, the, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, the Immigration Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, on and on and on and on. He just understood how to get something through. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is, is a great example. That was, of course, the first uh, civil rights legislation that really had teeth and that ultimately broke the back of Jim Crow with its false promise of separate but equal laws for the races. And and Johnson uh, sort of outmaneuvered the Southern Democrats who were keeping that legislation at bay by breaking the filibuster. And he did it by working not only congressmen who were on the inside, but also the press who was covering what was happening on Capitol Hill. Johnson worked every angle to ensure that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 got through Congress and was ultimately passed. And why was it that he cared so deeply about that? Well, I go back, uh, Lillian, to the, to the, those Mexican-American schoolchildren first. Johnson saw, again, through their eyes, how different people of color had it in this country at that time. And he desperately wanted to do something for those kids. Later, he headed up the National Youth Administration for Franklin Roosevelt here in Texas, and he worked with African-Americans. So he desperately wanted to do something meaningful with his presidency, wanted to finish the New Deal that had been started by Franklin Roosevelt because he saw what government could do to the lives of the afflicted in this country. And civil rights was, uh, was first on his agenda when he ascended to the presidency in the wake of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Okay, we're back to tick through 10 major facts about LBJ. Number one, his first campaign for Congress in 1937 was funded largely by his wife's inheritance. And his first Senate win was razor thin and it left a lot of people questioning if there had actually been some fraud. Number two, after six terms as a Democratic congressman and two terms as a senator, Johnson was chosen as John F. Kennedy's vice presidential nominee for the 1960 election. Number three, a couple hours after JFK was assassinated in Dallas in 1963, Johnson was sworn in as president aboard Air Force One before it took off from Dallas. There were 27 people crammed into that part of the plane to watch him take the oath. Number four, there were two bills that JFK had endorsed, but that he hadn't been able to get through Congress. And Lyndon Johnson successfully pushed both of these through. One was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was the first real civil rights law since Reconstruction. And the second was a tax cut. 
Number five. After Johnson's been president for about the last year of what was supposed to be JFK's term, Johnson ran for president in his own right in the election of 1964, and he won by more than 15 million votes, which was the widest popular margin in U.S. history. Number six, Johnson called his own presidential agenda the Great Society, and a big pillar of it was what he referred to as the War on Poverty, which ended up being one of the more controversial parts of his agenda at the time. Number seven, he established the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the leader he appointed, Robert Weaver, became the first African-American to hold a cabinet position. Number eight, LBJ nominated Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court, making him the first African-American Supreme Court justice. Number nine, more than 30,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War during Johnson's presidency, and his inability to find a way to end that war is what led to number 10, his decision not to run for a second full term as president which he announced in March of the 1968 election year. So we're going to go back now to talking with Mark Updegrove. I think a lot of people, especially right now with all the movies and everything out, sure. n- know the sort of civil rights story, but maybe don't know as well some of the other, some of the other really landmark achievements of his. You know, there is, uh, in my lifetime, I think the most, the, the two most important presidents without question are Lyndon Johnson and Ronald Reagan. Uh, Lyndon Johnson shows what big government can do uh, and Reagan battles against big government. Big government is the problem, not the solution. So you have these diametrically different presidents, but Johnson passes a, a an array of legislation that is unmatched by anybody in the 20th and 21st centuries, with the exception of Franklin Roosevelt. Several of his lesser known uh, pieces of legislation, things that you wouldn't uh, necessarily associate with Lyndon Johnson include uh, the passage of the legislation that creates the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts, and that creates NPR and PBS. But those were very important to Johnson in giving uh, Americans, uh, all Americans, access to culture and to unfiltered news and to education. Uh, so they were part of a, a larger vision he had for the great society. There are other pieces of legislation too, like childhood safety, those those caps that we have on medicine bottles that make it difficult for children to open them. That's a creation of Lyndon Johnson because one of his aides uh, had a a son who consumed pills and had to go to the hospital, mistakenly, and had to go to the hospital to get his stomach pumped. And LBJ said, it's these damn bottles. We need legislation that changes that. And sure enough, the Childhood uh, Safety Act comes to fruition. The Immigration Act is, is one piece of legislation that really changes the heart and soul of America because it lifted restrictions that we had on immigrants coming in from the the non-Western European countries uh, who wouldn't have been able to immigrate otherwise. Uh, Johnson felt that bigotry not only 
existed within our borders, but stood at our border as well. Uh, hence the Immigration Act in 1965. What do you see as being at the root of how Johnson was able to achieve so much compared to many other presidents? You know, what, what do you think was at the heart of what, what made that difference? One of the important things is he understood the ephemeral nature of political capital. Uh, he, he knew instinctively that he had a limited window to uh, pump out the legislation that was important to his vision for America. So in 1965 alone, you get the Voting Rights Act, which I think is his most important law. Uh, it's the most transformational of the trilogy of civil rights laws that he puts on the books because it, it affects fundamental change. But he also, uh, that year, puts through uh, Medicaid and Medicare, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the Higher Education Act, the Clean Air Act, the Highway Beautification Act, uh, the creation uh, and inauguration of Head Start of the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities. This is all one year because Johnson knows, uh, as he said, when a president is first elected, he's a giraffe. Six months later, He's a worm. So while he was walking tall and had this political capital, he was going to spend it as efficiently and effectively as he possibly could. So in terms of his his leadership style, you know, it's known that he was willing to lie. He was to bully people, to be ruthless. Um Do you think that these were all fundamentally crucial to his ability to effectively get things done or that he could have been effective otherwise could have still gotten a lot of this legislation through and we didn't need all the darker traits of his that we got? You know, it's hard to say. I think Lyndon Johnson had a bigger purpose in mind. Uh, but I, you know, there were, there were, he is, has colossal flaws in his nature, whether those aided him uh, in in helping to fulfill his agenda or not, I can't say. This is a guy who has demons and flaws and might try at times to outrun them, but they always seem to catch up. If, if Lyndon Johnson were angelic, would he be able to thrive in Washington as he did? Probably not, but I'm not sure anybody could thrive uh, in Washington with an angelic nature. I think you would have to have darker parts of your personality in order to uh, to not only acquire power, but to exercise it effectively. One thing that I've been fascinated by is um, his sense of paranoia. Would you be able to give an example of, you know, what his paranoia could look like at times? And then also just whether there were some positive effects of that, either making him work harder or be more vigilant or think through worst case scenarios or... I think Johnson had a, a, one of his flaws is he had a penchant for self-pity. Uh, and he frequently saw, uh, rightly or wrongly, that people were out to get him, whether it was somebody in the media or somebody in the Kennedy family or, or uh, uh, a congressman or, or senator. Uh, that was just part of who he was. Sometimes he was probably right. And I think he did have this sort of paradoxical inferiority complex. Uh, I think he, he was he felt like he was being judged all the time for uh, being a product of a small town in 
Texas for going to a substandard university uh, like uh, Southwest State Teachers College as opposed to a Harvard and Yale. And I think in those days in particular, the Northeast was even uh, that much more of a stronghold and Ivy Leaguers dominated Washington uh, much more so even than today. So Johnson, in many respects, was judged. And he would often say, uh, I have never met somebody more bigoted in Texas than I have in New York City. Uh, those people are incredibly judgmental. And frankly, he had a point. Also, of course, his ultimate failure in the eyes of many Americans would be the Vietnam War. And he once said to Lady Bird, I can't get out. I can't finish it with what I've got. So what the hell do I do? Um, how do you think that understanding and examining his handling of Vietnam just gives us greater understanding of what his Achilles heel was as a leader? You know, you're, you're absolutely right. He says in a very haunting telephone conversation, which we have here at the LBJ library, uh, I, uh, I don't, I don't think, think it's, it's worth fighting for, and I don't think we can get out. And it's just the biggest damn mess. It I is. Saw. It's an awful mess. And we just got to think about. Uh, I look at this sergeant of mine this morning. Got six little old kids over there, and he is getting out my things and bringing me in my night reading and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought about ordering all those kids in there. there. And what in the hell am I ordering him out there for? Johnson just couldn't find a way out of the Vietnam. War. And he believed to his dying day that keeping communist insurgents out of Vietnam was instrumental in not uh, emboldening communists in, uh, in, in China and the Soviet Union, who might, if they prevailed in Vietnam, go on to uh, try to conquer countries that were of greater strategic significance. So in a sense, Johnson felt like he was was keeping World War III from playing out. Whether that's true or not, we can't know. But I, I also think that um, he says at various times in his presidency, I don't want to be the first president to lose a war. Uh, I don't think it was solely ego that led him not to give up the ghost in, in Vietnam. I really do believe he thought that it was a war of strategic significance. But that said, he was profoundly ambivalent about the war and anguished about its consequences. I'm always really interested in how presidential legacy shifts over time. Have you noticed that the things that LBJ is praised for or taken to task for today look different from even a handful of years ago, um, sort of the way that people thought about his legacy. It's night and day, Lillian, even in the, in the last five years. Hmm. Johnson, when he left the presidency, uh, left with the dark cloud of Vietnam over his head, and it didn't dissipate in his lifetime. He died four years and two days after leaving office, he died on January 22nd, 1973. And the passions around Vietnam didn't recede for well over a generation. That war, which so divided our nation, really informed our views of Lyndon Johnson, who many thought was the war's chief protagonist. 
But now as passions have cooled, I think we appreciate the lasting legislative legacy of Lyndon Johnson first and foremost, these transformative laws that he puts on the book, particularly in the area of civil rights. What he does as president changes things for people of color in this country irrevocably. So I think while Johnson was the Vietnam War president, I think he'll now uh, and heretofore become known as the civil rights president, because I don't think there's any more important domestic issue in the life of this country than civil rights. When Johnson left office, and even when he died a few years later, the country was in a state of prolonged, incredible unrest. Race riots, war protests. It had witnessed JFK's assassination in 63, Malcolm X's assassination in 65, In 1968, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. Given just the sense in the country at the time that so much had fallen apart, do you think that Johnson felt a pride in the things that he had accomplished? Or that was all just, at the time, overpowered by a fixation on what he wasn't able to solve? I think in so many ways, Lyndon Johnson was a tortured soul. And there's no doubt in my mind that he had regrets when he died at the age of 64 from a heart attack. Uh, I think he probably regretted in some ways leaving Washington. Uh, He did so because he sensed his own mortality. His his grandfather, his father, they both died of heart ailments in their early 60s. Lyndon Johnson himself almost died at the age of 47 in 1955 from a near fatal heart attack. And he he had a sense that he was going to die early. I think that and the fact that Vietnam had just worn him down, led him not to seek re-election in 1968. And I I think he went back to the LBJ ranch with great ambivalence, um, having not achieved some of the things that he had hoped to achieve despite all that he had actually done. I think uh, Lyndon Johnson in, in so many ways missed power, uh, missed Washington. He was a creature of power, and I think he probably felt most alive when he had it, when he was able to, to exercise it and do something with it. to this week's guest, Mark Updegrove of the LBJ Presidential Library. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Westner. And next week, we'll reach the only president to resign in all of American history. We'll be talking about Watergate and Richard Nixon. And joining us, I promise, I promise you will be joining us, will be one of the reporters who broke the story, Bob Woodward. Come back next week.